0: This morning, we're taking our text from Luke chapter 1. Um, As last time was the case, we're going to use a single verse to introduce our theme. Uh, This morning, it's Luke chapter 1, verse 35. But since it belongs to the account of the Annunciation, we'll begin our reading at verse 26. Luke chapter 1, verse 26 to verse 35. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. That sixth month, of course, is the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, which has been reported in the previous paragraph. Nazareth, as you remember, will figure later in the gospel because of its insignificance. It's called a city here. But that is perhaps only because the Greek of that period did not have a specific word for town. It certainly wasn't much of a city, and it isn't mentioned in any of the primary sources of information regarding Palestine in the first century. In fact, Luke mentions that it was in Galilee because his readers would not otherwise likely know where Nazareth was. We'd call it a village not a city. Zechariah, you remember, was met in the temple, the very center of Jewish national life. But Mary was met in Nazareth. Much of the Lord's work would be, as you remember, among the common people, the disenfranchised, the lowly, the despised. That he should have been born of a no-account Jewish maiden from a no-account town is surely significant. It's part of his humiliation. It's part of this great stoop that our Savior made down to this world and down to the bottom of human life in order to deliver us from sin and death. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David and the virgin's name was Mary. A good bit of very important information. Mary was a virgin, a fact repeated twice here and then confirmed by her own mouth later in the same paragraph. She is betrothed, but not married, in those days meaning that she was formally, even legally, committed to marriage to Joseph. As we'll learn, for example, in Matthew chapter 1, a divorce was necessary in order to end a betrothal, but that they had not yet come together to live as husband and wife. That, of course, is important because there is to be no thought, no suggestion that Jesus was born in the ordinary way. And third, Joseph was of the house of David, a descendant of Israel's greatest king, and therefore any son he had, even by adoption, would belong to the line of David, a prerequisite for the Messiah who, according to the prophets and according to the original covenant that God had made with David, was himself to be a descendant of David. By the way, we should probably... Not certainly, but probably think of Mary as an adolescent by today's standards, not a young woman. It was typical in the Jewish practice of that time for girls to be betrothed by their 12th or 13th year. During betrothal, of course, and that period could last for some time, the girl remained in her parents' home. And he came to her and said, "'Greetings, O favored one!' The Lord is with you. Now, as you may remember, a great deal of confusion was created by the Latin Vulgate's translation of favored one by by gratia plena, full of grace. That was taken by Roman Catholics to mean that Mary had grace in abundance, so much grace that she could be the source of grace to others. No one, including Catholic biblical scholarship, defends that meaning of Luke's words today, but the damage was done. Highly favored is the idea, as will be clear by the explanation of his greeting given to her by Gabriel in verse 30. Or as Albert Bengel, the early German Lutheran biblical commentator, noted, the words mean not that Mary is the mother of grace, but that she was a daughter of grace. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Remember, it's the same name as Joshua. It means the Lord is salvation or the Lord is Savior. He will be great and will be exalted, or called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, which means he will be the Messiah. No, the words couldn't mean anything else. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? Mary understood human biology. Gabriel's response in the following verses confirms That Mary's question concerned the method of this conception. She wasn't denying that God could do it. She wanted to know how it was to be done. And the angel answered her, "...the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called holy." the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. We're inclined to miss the heroism of this reply of quiet but complete submission on, a, on Mary's part. No young woman In her situation, no girl in the Judaism of that day would be unaware of the complications that would inevitably follow a pregnancy of this kind. But she submitted to her calling, as God's will, complications and difficulties notwithstanding. Our Father in heaven, we have before us this magnificent passage, this magnificent event Rendered in beautiful art so many times by the great painters of human history. The Annunciation. There is much for us here. But Lord, in particular, from verse 35, teach us your holy word. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. When people think of the Christmas history, when they read it from Matthew or from Luke, when they sing it in the Christmas hymns or hear it sung while they are at home or in their car or shopping at the mall, a familiar cast of characters inevitably appears. There are Zechariah and Elizabeth, Joseph and Mary, the angel of the Annunciation, the angels who appear to the shepherds, the shepherds themselves, Simeon and Anna, the Magi, and the wicked King Herod. One of the things that makes the Christian history so charming on the one hand And so historically authentic on the other is precisely this cast of characters, so true to life, and most of them so unquestionably human beings of that time and place. But there is an actor in this drama who is virtually never mentioned in any of the Christmas hymns, whose presence is largely missed even when the history is read straight out of the Word of God. He appears here in verse 35. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Commentators have long pointed out that the verb used in this verse and translated overshadow harks back to the Spirit of God's brooding or hovering over the waters at creation in the second verse of the Bible. This is not, to be sure, the first appearance of the Holy Spirit in the Christmas Narrative, Nor will it be the last. The angel who appeared to Zechariah while he was burning incense in the temple told him that the son that would be born to him and Elizabeth in his old age, the son he was to name John, would be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Later, when Zechariah delivered the prophecy we know as the Benedictus, the hymn that concludes the first chapter of Luke's gospel, we're told that he spoke because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Later, when Mary, now pregnant herself, visited Elizabeth, soon to deliver the son who would grow up to be John the Baptist, the baby in her womb, that is, in Elizabeth's womb, leaped with joy because both she and he were filled with the Holy Spirit. When it came time for God to break into history to bring to pass the ancient promises concerning the Messiah to accomplish in his Son the salvation of the world. The Holy Spirit is everywhere making things happen. But back to the principal point. God the Son was conceived in the womb of his virgin mother by the creative power and activity of the Holy Spirit. However it happened that a male baby was conceived in the womb of a virgin mother, however it happened that a human baby was joined to the person of the eternal Son of God, it happened by the power and by the working of the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, who has often been called the executive of the Godhead, the one who brings the divine plans to pass. We too often forget that it was the Holy Spirit that brought about and created the incarnation of the Son of God. But even then, we would miss the stupendous significance of that fact if we didn't go on to notice and then to ponder that from this point and throughout the entire course of the Lord's human life on earth, he was accompanied by, he was enabled by, he was empowered by, and he was directed by The Holy Spirit. There were two persons involved in God's incarnate life and ministry the Son and the Spirit. As you remember, this is precisely what the prophets had long before foretold. In Isaiah 11, written some 700 years before the birth of Jesus Christ, we read A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, from his roots a branch will bear fruit, the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. And in the first of Isaiah's songs of the servant of the Lord, the coming Messiah, we read, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him. And this is precisely what God did, as the Gospels make emphatically clear. The early prophecies made about the infant child by Simeon were made, we, were to- we are told, in Luke chapter 2, because the Holy Spirit was upon Simeon. Later, concerning the hidden years of the Lord's childhood and young adulthood, Luke tells us in chapter 2, verse 40, that the favor of the Lord was upon him. What does that mean? But that the Holy Spirit was with him and was enabling him to grow in wisdom and understanding. And as Luke puts it in chapter 2, verse 52, to grow in favor with God and man. It's an extraordinary statement, isn't it? That Jesus, the boy and the young man, grew in the favor of God. We might well have thought that he was from the beginning of his life as much God's favorite as it would ever be possible to be. But it was not so. Jesus developed. He matured. He gathered wisdom, spiritual insight, experience, deepening conviction. How did he do that? Everywhere we are told how he did it, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in his heart as a man. At his baptism, the Spirit came upon him afresh, as Luke tells us in chapter 3, verse 21. He was 30 years of age. That's a significant detail. This was his anointing for the priestly work of teaching and making sacrifice that he had come to do. Immediately thereafter, we read in chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he fasted and was tempted by the devil. What is Luke telling us? He's telling us that the Lord bested the devil through that month of dark and difficult days because his faith was protected by, sustained by, strengthened by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Lest we miss that point, At the conclusion of that same account of the temptation in the wilderness, we read, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. In his first sermon, preached in the synagogue at Nazareth, his hometown, he used as his text Isaiah chapter 61, which begins, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And as it began, so it continued. Everything that the Lord Jesus did, he did in the power, that is, with the present aid of the Holy Spirit. Everything he accomplished was in, by, and through the Holy Spirit who was with him. From what, for example, came the extraordinary power of his teaching? Why did it have the mesmerizing effect it had On the great multitudes who came to listen to him. John the Baptist had told his crowds that the one coming after him would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And so it happened. His words suddenly had authority. They brought conviction. The crowds who heard him knew that this was a different voice than any they had heard before. It was the Spirit who created that impression by enabling the Lord to speak as he spoke and by impressing the hearts of the Lord's hearers as he spoke. John tells us in his gospel that people who heard him were saying to one another, no one ever spoke like this man. You know, it would happen again in Christian history. The words of a preacher suddenly captivating immense crowds of people and there too It was the Holy Spirit at work. I suppose most Christians naively suppose that Jesus performed miracles as God the Son with the divine power that was his because he was God. God can heal the sick. God can still still the storm. God can give sight to the blind. God can even raise the dead because God can do anything. But Jesus in the Gospels is everywhere and almost always, the transfiguration is the notable exception, everywhere and always he is a man. It was a man who changed the water to wine. It was a man who fed the 5,000, a man who gave sight to the blind, a man who raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. But how could a man do such things? We are told he did such things as Moses and Elijah had done before him by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus himself on one occasion says he drove out demons by the power of the Spirit. Peter, in an extraordinarily important statement, tells us in his sermon preached in the house of Cornelius, That God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. He did it because God was with him. How was God with him? By the Holy Spirit. In fact, so dependent was Jesus the man upon the power of the Holy Spirit that there were times and places in which and where Christ could not perform a miracle. The man, Jesus, needed help. And he got it from the Holy Spirit. How was it that Christ so willingly and perfectly went to the cross, to the terrible suffering of his death, to the triumph over sin that was accomplished there? We read in Hebrews 9.14 that it was through the eternal Spirit that he offered himself without blemish to God. The writers of the New Testament knew very well that everything Jesus did, he did through the power of the Holy Spirit who was with him. Jesus himself had taught them that. In the grave, the Lord's body did not begin to rot. Why? Because, as the prophets had foretold, God would not let his Holy One see corruption. But surely by now, we know that the person of the Godhead who actually preserved the body of the Lord Jesus for his resurrection, was none other than the Holy Spirit. That conclusion is then confirmed by the fact that the Lord's resurrection is likewise attributed to the Holy Spirit. Paul makes a great point of this in Romans 6, when he turns to his readers and exhorts them, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells with you. Follow the drift of Paul's argument there. God the Father raised Jesus from the dead, but he did it by the Holy Spirit. Just as God the Father sent his Son into the world, but it was by the Holy Spirit that he actually arrived as a human being in the womb of his virgin mother. Again, we have the Holy Spirit as the executive of the Trinity, the person who executes the will of the three-person God. There is much more evidence I could cite, but I've said enough to make the point. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, did not exploit his divine powers or prerogatives in his life and ministry as our Savior. He did all of that as a man, a true and authentic man. He had to do it as a man, a man with all the weaknesses and limitations of our nature, apart from sin. How was it possible that a mere man should have done what he did, should have accomplished what he accomplished? And from beginning to end, the Bible's answer to that question is that it would not have been possible except that he was enabled, he was empowered, he was accompanied, he was kept, he was preserved, he was directed every step of the way by the Holy Spirit. If I may put it more crudely, the incarnation and the atonement was a two-person job. Now that's highly interesting, not least because we don't usually think of the Lord's life and ministry in these terms as often as the Bible tells us to think in those terms. But taking all of this data together, some extraordinary facts emerge. The first is the true, the authentic humanity of the Lord Jesus. We always struggle to keep this clear in our thinking. We find it so easy to think of Jesus as a superman, rather than as a true man, a real man, an ordinary man. As if his divine nature, we think, empowered his human nature. But it did not, and it was not so. We don't rightly understand the incarnation, the meaning of Christmas, unless and until we understand that Jesus lived his life and did his work as our Savior, as a man. A human being just like you and me, apart from sin. That's what makes the incarnation so vitally necessary. Our Savior had to be one of us. A man for men. Who is the mediator between God and man? Paul tells us the man, Christ Jesus. That Jesus could have lived so completely, so entirely as a man is the mystery of the incarnation. But how could a mere man do what he did? Well, a mere man, left by himself, even a sinless man, could not have done what Jesus did. He needed help and he got it from the Holy Spirit. Jesus as a man could not have bested the devil in the wilderness because the devil is more powerful than a human being. He could not have commanded the crowds as he did. He could not have performed the mighty works that he performed. He could not have remained sinless through the entire course of what was the most difficult, the most tested human life ever lived. He could not have conquered death and could not have risen from the dead without the help the help of the Holy Spirit every step of the way. He could not have done it, and so he did not do it. He did not make his journey alone the most important journey ever taken By a human being. The second of these extraordinary facts that emerge from the Bible's pervasive witness to the fact that Jesus had an inseparable companion throughout his entire earthly life and ministry is that no human being, not even a sinless human being, no human being could, by his own wits, his own powers, his own will, save us from sin and death. If even the man, Christ Jesus, if even the human nature of the incarnate God, if even this man could not do it by by himself, it could not be done. If you needed to be convinced that salvation is of the Lord, is a work that only God can do for you and in you. If you needed to be persuaded that you are helpless to save yourself, here is an unassailable argument. Jesus Christ couldn't save us by himself. To save us, even he needed the power, the working, the presence, and the help of God. And if he needed that, how much more human beings like ourselves, who are not only mere creatures with all the limitations of our human nature, but deeply sinful, bent, broken, disfigured creatures who have accumulated a lifetime of offenses against both God and man and who have fashioned for ourselves a life of selfish disdain for God and for others and whose lives are now consigned to move along the deep ruts of sin that we have carved out for ourselves by long years of foolish and wicked habits. If any vestiges remain of spiritual self-confidence in your heart, Let this be the end of them forever. Even Jesus himself couldn't gain salvation for others apart from the divine power exerted on his behalf by the Holy Spirit. As you know from elsewhere in the Bible, the Spirit of God is the author and the only author of every true, authentic, eternal life to be lived by a human being proof of that is that he was the author of that life for the one perfect and sinless man who has ever existed in the world. So let's go back to the beginning. Is it not a mistake for us, a terrible mistake, to forget the role the Holy Spirit played in the Christmas story? Mary gets much more attention than the Holy Spirit. The shepherds get much more attention than the Holy Spirit. So do the angels. But the entire history, the glorious events that brought eternal life into the world were the doing, the accomplishment of the third person of the triune God. I venture to say, this might surprise you, I venture to say that the Holy Spirit himself is not at all offended by the attention we pay to the other characters in the Christmas story. The divine humility is such that the Spirit actually rejoices In the attention that is paid, after all, because of his own work, to Jesus and to the worthy saints. That's the very nature of his work, to shine a light on others deserving of our faith or our admiration. Jesus said as much in his magnificent address about the coming of the Holy Spirit in the upper room the night of his betrayal. But you and I still need to remember the role the Spirit played in the drama of our salvation. We need to remember it was the Holy Spirit who made Jesus who he was and what he was. Jesus was a man of the Holy Spirit par excellence. And what makes that fact so fundamentally important for you and me is that we too are to be people of the Holy Spirit. The whole explanation of salvation in the Bible teaches us to believe that it begins, the new birth and the gift of faith, It continues sanctification and spiritual growth and it ends, is consummated at the resurrection all by the power of the Holy Spirit. You and I too, if we're going to make this journey from this world to the next as Jesus himself did before us, we must be led by the Holy Spirit as he was. We must walk with the Holy Spirit as he did. We must depend, as he did, on the presence of the Holy Spirit with us and the power of the Holy Spirit in us. If you're anything like me, you forget days on end that the Holy Spirit is with you. You forget that he's been given to you as the seal of your salvation. You forget that a conscious effort to walk by the Spirit, depending upon the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, is the means, the only means of successfully living the Christian life, doing battle with our sins, offering service to God. You forget, as I forget, that when you pray, the Holy Spirit is alongside of you, praying with you and for you with unutterable groaning, as Paul reminds us. Just to remember that simple fact must alter the way we think about our lives. Surely it must. As Jesus Christ was a man of the Holy Spirit, we are to be people of the Holy Spirit. As he did what he did by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are to do what Christians are called to do by the power of the Holy Spirit. And as he depended upon the Holy Spirit for the strength he did not have in himself, so must we. We're just human beings weak and severely limited in what we can achieve in the devil's world and all the more with hearts like ours. But with the Holy Spirit at work in us and with the Holy Spirit alongside of us, accompanying us, what can we not achieve? The ministry of the Holy Spirit throughout the whole course of the life of Jesus Christ is the irrefutable evidence of the necessity of his ministry in your life and mine. Here, too, the Lord Jesus left us an example that we should follow in his steps. He walked with the Holy Spirit, and we are to do the same. And how is that done? Not by some technique. Simply in this way, by being conscious all the time that he is with us to help us and then to act in the strength of that conviction. God, remember, made the same promise to you that he made to his Son, if even in a different degree. I will put my Spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. It's ours to believe that promise, and then in our lives to prove it true. Amen.